Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi there, this is Jeremy Scheinwald. Welcome to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the VFA podcast. I'm also an entrepreneur, founder of the Mission Driven Group, who truly enjoys talking about entrepreneurship. Thus far, this podcast has been a labor of love for me. I'm lucky to have David Kidder on the podcast today, a serial entrepreneur who's done a lot of research into entrepreneurship himself. David is most recently the co-founder of Bionic. Uh, It's in stealth form, so uh, I'll I'll let you listen to David talk about it. Uh, I say most recently because he's served as the co-founder and CEO of Clickable, an online advertising software as a service firm acquired by Syncaps, SmartRay Network, a mobile advertising pioneer acquired by LifeMinders, and NetX, a web authoring platform acquired by Target Vision. David's an active angel investor through his fund, Alt Option Return, with investments including Artsy, TapAd, MileWise, which was acquired by Yahoo, Payoff, How About We, and more. In addition to starting and investing in this myriad of businesses, he's also co-authored uh, a variety of books. He's a two-time New York Times uh, best-selling uh, author. Uh, he wrote a series of books, The Intellectual Devotional, and he's the author of The Startup Playbook, which, uh, through which he's interviewed a who's who of today's leading entrepreneurs. It's our pleasure to have David Kidder on the VFA Smart People Should Build Things podcast. David, thanks so much for, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. love uh, VFA and the whole crew, so it's a real privilege. So you're one of the first people we've had who is a true serial entrepreneur. I counted six companies that you've started, if you include your fund. Um, NetX, SmartRay Network, Renaissance Integrated Solutions, Clickable, Alt Option Return, um, and Bionic Solutions, where you are now. And you've done a ton of research into entrepreneurship as well. Um, There are entrepreneurs, and then there are serial entrepreneurs. From your experience, why are some people one but not the other? Well, I mean, it's... um it's like a career choice, I guess. You know, if you can't really work for anybody, you better learn how to work for yourself. Um, so, you know, some of those this, of the six, two are actually um, funds that I are of that we make investments out of in the four our companies. But, um, you know, a, I guess a serial entrepreneur is someone who uh, has made be, building things their career. Um, you know, sometimes you have one and done entrepreneurs. Sometimes you have people who are in a professional environment for a long period of time and end up spending something out of starting a company. And um, and my kind of career choice is just, I just love to build things, and I uh, I like to focus on one thing at a time. And so I guess if if the average startup takes between four and eight years, if you work for twenty years or thirty years, those numbers sort of add up. I guess uh, on the every other uh, the other side of every every company, either is an exit uh, for good or exit for bad. So uh, our batting average is pretty good, but we've also had the whole journey of you know kind of a small, medium, large exits to total soul-crushing failure. So it's the whole experience. Okay, well, let's, we'll, we'll try to go yeah. through all of them uh, to the extent we can. Let's, let's start by, let's reach back. 
You created a web authoring services company, NetX, yep. before people even knew what the web was. Uh, in 1994, I'm trying to reach back. I'm not sure. I was abroad, and I, I don't think I even had email. I think yeah. I was still writing letters at that point. How did you How did you know how to what How did you know to create something in 1994 like that? So it was um, good fortune, timing, and luck. So one of the things um, about writing this book, which I did last, called the Startup Playbook, is when you ask the entrepreneurs, you know, on what 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 um, uh, on, a, on, a, on a zero to one hundred, like what percentage of your outcome or of, of your exit value, of all the money you have in the bank is good timing, fortune, and luck, you know, they, they typically say I'm on 80%, and so it's true about my own experience. So having graduated from RIT in the mid-90s, uh, I had worked for a startup for two or three years during college that was a partner of Silicon Graphics and SGI boxes, if you're familiar with them, powered things like ProEngineer and Alias and Wavefront, and so we were in industrial design and involved in the engineering side of this. Um, that heavy-end software lived on heavy-end boxes, like SGI boxes. And uh, at the dawn of the internet, we needed really powerful servers to run these web-based applications. And so the SGI box had this thing called WebForce. And that was with 94. And we were like, literally, you could go into the internet, which barely existed back then. You could like register any domain name for effectively three or three bucks. Um, it was wide open. And uh, we were working with some large uh, agencies who their clients wanted to be in the web. And they had no way to kind of um, make these pages. And so we started building... Uh, both the services and the software to do that, and so that was uh, that was the beginning. And then we ended up selling that company a couple of years later, two years later, and then did a roll up. I joined a team that did a roll up called Think New Ideas that went public. It was backed by Omnicom, and then exited. And then I did a company called SmartRay, which was very early. It was the early mobile web um, um, mobile alert business built on top of Tibco with Insta um, with the Reuters and Instanet was in the message to moment marketing world. So um, when your mobile devices, you want to be notified of something, we built that notification infrastructure now 13 years ago. And we right. ended up selling that after the dot-com crash for a pretty good exit. So let me let me jump yeah. in there. So, yeah. so I was curious one thing, and, and especially considering what you just said, mm -hmm. which is that you love building things. Yeah. So you, you have your first company, your first exit, and you went and worked for a roll-up. Yeah. Um, and you did that for, what, three, three years three, or so? About, like three, three and a half years, yep. And that must have been a really different feel for you. Were you just bursting at the seams, yeah. or were you really happy to be there? Did you learn a ton? I did. Uh, it was. Uh, I worked. I worked directly with one of the founders of that company, and um, and so I think that was where I, where I learned a lot of experience in just um, how to scale something. You know, we uh, going from like I think eighty to five hundred employees in eighteen months. It was totally crazy, and um, that was really the wild west. I mean, the whole team, the whole culture was just it was nuts and a lot of fun. I learned a ton of things. And um, and then and started up again on the other side of that, and so that was the the next company, SmartRay. And, and so SmartRay is what you just said. It, it, it was yeah. rolled into Life LifeMiters. Yeah, they bought it for a little over forty million bucks. The the the, the we raised about uh, about five million in venture. Um, we made no revenue. We had like I think thirty engineers. It was crazy, but the idea was was that because mobile devices at the time were these like little crazy WAP uh, devices, um, which is like. A slightly more mature version at the time of those Skytel pagers, and right. it was just—it was totally, um, you know, ridiculous to do this. <laughs> and but the, the key was is that you, when you're away from your desktop or your home computer at the time, um, when you're notified of something, you want it to have a very high threshold of meaning. So um, you could get alerts based on the data and the news you followed. So it's basically exception-based rule sets. It's um, only notify me under these conditions. You know, if it's raining and below 50 degrees outside notify me or you know my flights delayed notify me 
Um, what you discover is that you know, data is not all, you know, not all data is equal, so a flight delay is, uh, has a very different economic consequence than a flight cancellation. A you know, flight delay is a cup of coffee, a flight cancellation is a $1,000 event between hotel and travel and returning home or, or right. staying local. So you know, that concept was around um, um, building an alerting infrastructure around mobile um, devices that made the device more valuable. And this is pre-app era. Right. This is in 1999 to 2001. We were selling it in 2001. So you were just way ahead of the curve on that one? Uh, it was, it was way, just really too early, early for it? Yes. Yeah. This is the timing and luck part of it. We, we had still had a great exit. I mean, it was, it was good for us. Um, but, you know, to build a whole company was uh, was probably not in the cards relative to, you know, the marketplace, uh, you know, as, as you know, the whole kind of dot-com crash. So I've lived through the dot-com crash in 2008 and all these crazy events while building. So you kind of get used to uncertainty, so to speak. And so where are we now relative yeah. to then? Do you see do you see the same kind of dynamic? Uh, is it is it different? Are you worried about a bubble? Does it does it matter to you at all? Is it both as an investor yeah. and as someone who's who's, who's you know got yeah. another venture going on right now? Yeah, so um, not really to be honest with you. I think that you know they always say that there's it takes 20 years for our technology to go to mainstream. We're still effectively building off the back of the in, the dawn of the internet. So we're 20 years into it, right? 95 to 2015. So we're now in a mainstream state. So a lot of the applications and businesses are building that we're building on are sort of like a, a mature digital marketplace as opposed to a mature physical marketplace or a mature industrial marketplace. The backbone of what we're doing is is not <laughs> shaky, so to speak. Um, you know, i.e. infrastructure, or industrial complex, whatever. We have a digital complex that we're built off of that's creating disruption. And also, you know, this other major element now, which is just mobile. And I mean, you hear the slow, you know, what is it, slow, mo, low, or whatever it is, so, low, mo, social, local, mobile. Um, you know, the, the larger meta theme is that, you know, every most product cycles that have existed before, you know, a, a globally networked uh, world that's always on with a supercomputer in, product, pro, in your pocket, most of those marketplaces are, you know, ripe for disruption. And that's pretty much almost all industries in some way. Whether you're an industrial company and you're moving to the industrial internet and value is changing to, you know, the Uberization of most businesses, the on-demand gig economy, as we heard last week. And you, you already talked about the role of, of luck in others' yeah. Uh, experiences. Yeah. Are you going to give it the full, the the, the same 70, 80 percent, I think you said, that, that others give? Do you feel like yeah, you've been as probably. lucky, more lucky, less lucky than anyone else? I don't know. I mean, I you know, you have to, if you treat your, your as an entrepreneur, if you treat your own professional life life like a like a venture capital fund my, my your venture capital is your time and money and the value of that and over your career you want to be building up the value of your time and money relative to an expertise but um you know one of the things i learned from a friend of mine reed hoffman is that you need to have extreme focus on a single big idea it's one of the five lenses of the startup playbook but it's really about um getting really 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 good at one thing and um over your career a lot of these companies are important to you but they're experimentations in a lot of ways until they work or don't work um, and so, you know, being on the right side of, you know, an outcome can be both one of timing. So you try to get really good at timing, right? You know, you're very early mobile. mobile. We had a still a good exit, but we were very much on time for the sort of internet software services business. Um, that was an example of that. Um, I have friends who are, you know, at least in the Valley of New York, who are all brilliant, all smart, and just had the right company at the wrong time. And then companies that were, I've had friends who have exited around the hype curve, who've had massive exits, who are you know were weeks away from going from bankruptcy, so like you have you you have to look at that and you know timing is a really critical skill of when you believe that market maturity is going to happen and how your solution 
to a customer problem exist at that intersection. So that's an instinct and a skill that needs to be formed in you. So is that the one, and I apologize, what did, no. you, what did you say the general rule was? The, uh, have, was ex a, have extreme focus on a single big it, idea or a bigger, uh, uh, you know, I guess you'd call it the kind of Gladwellian test, the 10,000 hours that goes into something. Okay. Find out what your proprietary gift is and focus on that. Uh, so what is David Killer's proprietary gift? Uh, What's the, a good question. Um, you know, I, I've, you know, I'm not, I'm actually, I'm not actually, I'm not that smart and I'm not that, <laughs> and I'm, uh, I found that I'm very good uh, at um, framing things, so going into very complex situations and framing them, and um, being able to sort of see, understand signal and noise, so to speak. Um, and then secondly is just um, building roadmaps that get to commercial truth, you know, and really fighting for the kind of intellectual honesty about what customers really care about and do versus what you hope to be true. So you, on a spectrum of being like an, an irrational pessimist and a and a pathological optimist. Early in your career, you kind of start in the pathological optimism bucket, which is like, if I believe, it'll be true. And as you go through and you get sort of knocked down a couple of times, you start becoming more of a rational thinker. And that's a good place to stop. You don't want to get to like irrational pessimism, and some people will begin there and become rationalists. But somewhere between optimists and rational optimists is a really good place to start thinking about how to build businesses and and as Elon often says, wishful thinking is the enemy and kind of work that out of your psyche. Don't you kind of need to be a little bit irrational, considering how many businesses yeah. fail, right? Yeah. So I don't know what the actual numbers are. You know, people always throw out those yeah. stats of the numbers, the number of startups that fail and who knows what's, of them, yeah. what's actually accurate. But, but considering the number that failed, don't you kind of have to be a little bit irrational about your idea? Yeah. Otherwise, if you're going in totally rationally, you kind of say, well, the odds are kind of against I mean, you me. can be irrational and optimistic, but evidence-based. Right. So I think, I think what matters is that, is that you're the, 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 the core assumptions that you're building a business on are actually true. There's commercial truth in that, and you're driving commercial truth. So you may be optimistic or irrational on the way to that intersection two or three years down the road, road you know, when that the role changes and you've won. That might be the optimism, the irrational part of how fast that will happen. But the rational part is actually building up the logic around what customers do versus what they say that leads to that truth. So that's a part of it. Um, and that's sort of a skill and, and an experience thing that, that teaches you. You know, there's a, there was a, a statistic I saw like, I don't know, a couple of years ago that said, you know, what's the average age of a, of a successful exit from a venture capitalist? And, you know, you hear these stories of, you know, this the ton of 20-something wonderkin, the Mark Zuckerbergs and others who are the phenoms. And, and that does happen, but they are truly unicorns. I mean, I think the average age was the average in venture investment was around a three-time entrepreneur in their mid-30s who exited in their 40s. So it really is a skill. And, um, um, and some people are born with it, and some people have to have the instinct, but they have to develop it. I'm probably more towards that. Right. Okay. Well, there's still hope for me. I'm 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 at, I'm at the tender age of 39, so I'm good. busting to my good. 40s. And, That's good. No, I uh, mean, you, you've probably you've already won humanity's lottery. You're not going to go hungry, and you're not right. going to like you know, you know <laughs> run a clean water. So. You know, you can always go and build. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 12 years one business, and so that's right. one of the reasons why I asked that with, yeah. with, about that at the beginning. With the difference between serial entrepreneurs, uh, you know, and and yeah. and, uh, and and well, you're a classic overnight success then, right? Because yeah. it takes eight to ten years. I, I hope to figure so. it out. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. So so, but let me so let me ask you about that, about that that the transitioning again because. Um, looking at your bio, did you, you took some time off after SmartRay? Yes. What did I, you do with that time, and how did you know it was time to jump back in? Considering you're a serial entrepreneur and you see so many, I'm right. sure there are ideas constantly cycling through that you're considering. When do you know, you know, one's the, the you know, that's the, right. trying to think of a good metaphor, that's the one you want to marry. So um, so after SmartRay, I just kind of um, 
I hit the road. I turned in, I had my kind of like big Lebowski two years and <laughs> traveled to a couple dozen countries, started in Tibet and, you know, all over China and Africa and India and solo all over. Yeah. And it was really amazing experience. I mean, I've, I've seen everything from, I guess my backpack had the bottom, the top half was like all my sort of like traveling gear where you get in a, get a Jeep and go three weeks into safari and you don't see anyone. And the bottom half was like Prada. So I'd like, <laughs> my, my <laughs> assistant was, uh, planning you know an amazing adventures where you get lost in the world and then i'd like go stay at some of the best hotels in the world at the you know and hang out for a week or two so it was a really great adventure and it took a took much longer than i expected but i was uh after about nine months to 12 of the two years that i was sort of like hanging around uh, i started getting really itchy so just to start something and so that's actually a super bad instinct as it turns out um you you you're you're you really you know if you think of the number of business plans entrepreneurs write in their lifetime it's in the dozens typically it's just, it's just really discovering what they care about the most, and so it's uh, following that effort. Um, but what's interesting is I, I I I don't think I learned the sort of selection lenses around ideas until up until probably five years ago, uh, when in my last company, which we were crossing the chasm on very painfully, um, we'd raised a ton of venture capital. Um, I really was really I, I kept thinking to myself like how did I miss this? Like I had made some one or two pretty catastrophic strategic mistakes, and. Uh, you think by then you kind of know what you're doing, right? And then you get really tested. And I'll, I'll t later I'll tell you about, a little bit the kind of psychology around that experience. But also this is that clickable. Now. This is clickable. Okay. And I and I went out and um, started just <clears throat> you know asking some of my mentors and invest things that I've invested in the CEOs and their mentors. You know, basically two questions. It was one is how do you pick your biggest ideas? Or another way to say that is before you bet your life on something, what qualities does it have to have? What what, what criteria does it have to pass? And then secondly is what do you do in the first five years not to die? And that became because I realized I needed that that information because as a VC, an investor, you get to see, you know, 50 movies. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're like you're doing one movie at a time. So it's just vantage. It's mm -hmm. perspective advantage. It's it's the it's the story you get to understand and you need that to cheat time. And so I went and basically cheated time and the answer came back to that was quite profound. And that and and that's what became Renaissance. Is it when when you were that became the startup playbook. Startup playbook. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm advancing a little okay. further here. So. That's fine. Because I, 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 I had this create your narrative <laughs> as you go. No, no, it's no worries. So you're asking about <clears> like the, the the selection stuff or or what I learned on that trip, and I think so that you led you to, that led you to research. At this. Yeah, I mean it was really it was a personal journey, just Got it. discovery, okay. and so. Over those years, I started focusing on things that um, I cared about more than anyone else. And so I started writing a book series um, with uh, a friend of mine now who runs the Today Show, Noah Oppenheim, which became Intellectual Devotion. Right. Um, and that five books, and two of which were, uh, were New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, that was crazy. Mm -hmm. It was like this cathartic, like I you know, wrote and illustrated my basement for a year and created every part of the book because it was something like, I want this. I would buy this product. And so I sort of like stopped listening to like white space and just started chasing things that I cared about. It turns out that like that was more, some of the most successful stuff I've ever done. It was a really powerful lesson, and I didn't understand why until six years later when I wrote the Startup Playbook, which is the number one lens of all the entrepreneurs. The the number one lens was the idea of proprietary giftedness. Is that you, when you create something, a company, you have to have an obsession and, a, and an advantage at a skill level that no one else in the world has, hmm. or if you dedicate your life into something for several years. You, were, you would probably have a good chance of being the top three people in the world to do it. Turns out this book and my last company were, are both examples of like, there's might be three people in the world that could create this if they cared as much and had my skill to do it. And you know that, that book series is an example of that. And Bionic is an example of that now. So 
the proprietary giftedness lens or criteria is is, is the number one idea, the, the number one lens to think about before you start a company. Uh, if you're chasing white space or opportunity, the one who wins that space is likely to have passed the proprietary giftedness is going to kick your butt because they're born to do it. And mm -hmm. you have to have that level of passion and care about an idea or a problem to solve it. Give us a give us a couple. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure they're well known entrepreneurs who have this proprietary yeah. giftedness and and. Uh, well, we we, uh, we we see them. I mean, we see people who innately understand the social economy. You know, the reads of the world, the marks of the world, the obvious ones. Um, un understand through life experiences the Dorsey around you know understanding cities and Twitter. So so to simplify, I mean, is this why we're not using Friendster right now, but we're Maybe. using Facebook because yeah. Mark so, Zuckerberg had this proprietary giftedness and this complete insane passion for this? Very likely. I mean, yeah. it, you, again, it, when you're investing in it, I mean, Peter Thiel, was, who was my biggest investor in my last company um, at, through the Founders Fund, I mean, they looked at a lot of social media companies, a lot. Mm -hmm. So when we, they knew that was a movement, and if you, you sort of look at the PayPal mafia around social, you know, it's, you know, Peter to Mark, Reed at LinkedIn, um, to some extent, Max and the whole uh, slide is there's a social gaming element to that, to Zynga, to um, to um, uh, Yammer. I mean, with David Sachs, like that that origin of that idea was who is the who who is the proprietary enough to take this idea and then express it right. in these marketplaces, and so that's an that's an example of a of a proprietary giftedness. So, um, but I think oh, sure. you have to sort of examine that yourself, you know. You have to really have a very good, truthful conversation with your own yourself on like, what is my proprietary gift? And the second conversation is, is how do I quit all my weaknesses? I don't, you know, at some point you need to end fixing yourself so you can get the concentration of energy and mind share into that one thing because in extreme focus, that's where that where the where the understanding and the development happens that no one else can do because optionality is your enemy. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. Okay, so you made me curious. Where yep. is where is the <clears throat> pardon me? Where is the, the the spot where you deviated from your proprietary giftedness and 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 went a little bit astray? Yeah. So I mean, my last uh, my one company my company Go Clickable was in a, was a more of a white space opportunity. You know, you had a huge marketplace like Search. Um, it was a very complex tool system and uh, to use. And uh, it's funny when I started the company. Um, I raised like $22 million like in one year. It went, went zero to big very fast in terms of capital. I had like I don't know, $20 million in the, in the bank and 15 employees at the time, pre-revenue. But I had 3,000 customers almost out of the box who were willing to buy this thing. So we had a very strong buying signal. But what we didn't understand is that they were actually, what they wanted was a painkiller. And the painkiller, what we had built was, <coughs> a, was, a, was a thing we patented called the ACT engine, an actionable recommendation engine. We'll look at all your data and then tell you the answers. So, but because I didn't really know what the proprietary gift of the company was, because I didn't understand that yet in my own sort of maturity as an entrepreneur, I started to sort of like fall into the trap of like suffering from the sin of comparison. Like, what are the other players doing out there? Um, how do I create a position that, that uh, sort of like rides over top of everyone else? Um, I started fall, you know, chasing other people's press releases. 
um, or trying to win the the, the the sort of press war, um, the air war for the company as opposed to generate you know growth as opposed to like just building the product. This is against your better judgment. Do you know you're making this mistake as you're doing it, or is it just kind of like I don't everything's know. moving so quickly that you got to do it, and you're not really thinking? Well, it's, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on you to right. create growth, right. and um, I don't know. I, I think looking back, I, I really uh, I ha we had the answer very early. And we just lost focus. But we, you still, but you still had an exit, right? You still, you still. Yeah, we ended up selling the company, company, but we, we. So on our way doing that, we. I don't think I've ever publicly talked about this. We, we raised uh, a bunch of money, grew the company to about 120, 125 employees, 150 employees over a period of like three years, and we're in revenue and growing. Um, and then we ended up doing a, uh, we doing a very big strategic investment from a big bank, which is public. It's Amex. And um, what we realized at the time was they, they had a tremendous amount of Google advertising spent on credit cards. And so it made a lot of sense, since we were in the digital marketing business, to go where the money was actually collected because you could connect transactional data with spend. Mm. That's sort of the holy grail, if you know what they want ad tech. And so that was the goal of it. But by the time we actually took the money and launched the product, it took a very long time because we're moving fast and independent. And it's sort of like giving one wheel of your Ferrari to another company. Like, you sort of spin out. Like, you can, you can go fast, <laughs> but like... Even if you lose control of one wheel, it's very difficult to like recover from that. And I think that I just didn't understand that. And I think I realized at some point after a year of taking that investment that I was building two companies at once. Hmm. And you know, you you can be you can love your like Siamese twin head kid, but like <laughs> I would hope so. no one else really wants to buy your Siamese twin kid head. So uh, and when you tear a Siamese twin in half, like it dies. So like you know, these are bad outcomes, and you don't realize you're doing it. But it, it uh, it's all exciting and high growth to turn back. You're like, how did I miss that? Which is why I wrote the book, so to kind of discover that idea. Right. But uh, that's that's sort of how it okay, So we we ended up selling a piece back to them their kind of Siamese twin head and right. we took the rest and we merged with another company and then I ended up leaving and then about a year later that company like had a number of exit opportunities but we were on the other side of sort of the hype curve at that point and the company ended up not making it over that next um, that, that next uh, curve. And that, and that company, so that company failed? Yes. Syncaps yep, or whatever later. the company that you sold to. Yep. Um, is that a heartbreaker? I mean, you, are you are you emotionally once you're yeah. gone? Are you emotionally gone? Um, how does it, how did it feel to see so, them yes. fold up? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's hard because a lot of people were all your people still. Yeah, there? I mean, yeah. what my I, what, it's funny because I didn't really realize this, but I've always promised my team members that we will cross the finish line. So you can validate this. So if, if any of my former clickable partners and friends are are listening, they'll tell you like we would always. This was the promise, which is. I will do whatever it takes to cross the finish line. You will get a W. You may not make money, you may make a fortune, but you, we will cross the finish line. So I sort of feel okay about finishing that. But the truth is, it never feels good. You know, the whole reason why we do this is to create growth for our investors. And I love our investors. They're some of my close friends, and I, I deeply respect them. This is the Fred Wilsons and Albert Wangers and Greg Heitzman's at First Mark and um, Brian uh, Singerman and Peter Thiel and Ken. And, um, we all are, are have a good relationship, but we also recognize that we're all betting our lives on things. We're kind of in the Powerball, you know, game, so to speak. Um, but you never let you never want to go through the experience. But I'll I'll tell you, um, um, what I learned out of that is a couple very critical sort of like psychological lessons that unless you go through it, um, that test, it, it you wouldn't really understand. I don't think what it means to be an entrepreneur with sort of freedom okay so the first one was is that you are you are more than your company and until you realize that until you separate yourself from your company that you are more than your company you are more than your kid 
you're more than your marriage, like those sort of things. You really are not in a position to make the right objective decisions about what's good for it because it becomes so close to it becomes you. And then your identity is the company. And then you're worried about the, the harm of your identity than the harm of the company. So in, in that one psychological hurdle is very, very critical. And the second one I learned out of that was, um, so if my, put another way is if my company fails, that doesn't, while well, that's a failure in my life experience, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means this lesson, you know, success is a bad educator. This this is going to be a painful lesson, but you you can you can you can lift yourself out of those thorns right. and restart, which I've which I've done, um, and it's a very important thing for life. I think the second one is that um, you actually are not in control. So whatever your spiritual origin, whether you believe in the universe or God or whatever it is, like you know you have to turn over these big bets, you know, over to uh, a power that you recognize you don't control, and so you can work, you can kill yourself. And you can put every, leave everything in the field and things can still fail. And likewise, you can also kill yourself and they can be hugely successful. But those outcomes ultimately, in my, my, this is again my view of the world, um, um, aren't in your control because you really can't control. We had two exit opportunities for large numbers in my last company um, at Clickable and we just couldn't get there. You know, it was a head of M&A who woke up with the wrong side of the bed and blew up a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, pre-IPO company, big social company, couldn't get a deal done. Is You know, if it did happen, we would have been heroes and geniuses. But we're the same people, even though right. the deal didn't happen. Right? And it was still in the same company. And I have friends who got those deals done and made fortunes who are, you know, they're, they're, they're successful. I'm very grateful for them and proud, proud of them. But same type of outcome. But what I learned is, is that the more you fear because you believe you can control the elements... Um, the more you squeeze it, the fewer options you have because you're actually considering fewer options. So and another way to say this is to be decisive for your, co- your, your company, you have to back up and consider all of the options for it, mm-hmm. including outright failure. Mm-hmm. That is actually a very real option. <laughs> right. That it goes, blows up, and you are reputation arm. That is an option, right? Or you have to kill it. As well, there are options that we don't control. So it's it was I, I was brought to my knees in that company because I was I lost like 17 pounds in like 90 days trying to get it across the finish line, and at the end I just had nothing left and I had I have a very good network I just couldn't get a deal done, and out of the blue quote unquote after going through this experience, the, the you know the, the the door the knock of the door came and we ended up you know getting an exit that had nothing to do with me right because that option wasn't one of my options. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So it's a, it's a very these are the you are more than your company, and um, you have to consider all the options of which to consider them all. You have to like let the company go to let it become what it's become. While they seem subtle, they're actually incredibly profound because they eliminate fear to actually lead. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I, I, what I'm fascinated by is your discussion of failure in such personal terms and the separation of yourself from failure. And I worry that we've gone dangerously to the other side where failure is almost glorified, you know, this fail fast or type let thing. failure go to your head, right? Yeah. You right. Know, and I mean, are you, are you, is that where you at all? You were, you're getting entrepreneurs that you're invested in that are going to take yeah. some money, fail and walk away and say, you know, maybe, maybe not feel that desperation and say like, yeah, right. you know, I, I've got to, no, I, I had desperation work. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I like, I think let's put it this way. I, I, let's, I think this is very important to characterize failure. There is productive failure which is, I'm very comfortable with, which is cheap failure. And then there's like failure, expensive failure, which is catastrophic, which is 
you, your company dies, you spend all your money, you know, unwisely, those sort of things. Like, right. there's there's an institutional failure <laughs> right. uh, level you should be very, very uncomfortable right. with. And there's a productive failure, which is you should be okay with that. And so that productive failure is about the experimentation, the first principles of logic. You've read this. Eric Ruiz is a good buddy of mine. Just the whole concept of lean and mm -hmm. experimentation, which allows the evidence to appear based on what customers do versus what they say, as opposed to like your addiction to being right or your mm -hmm. personal, you know, will to take, you know, take in a marketplace. Very rarely does that work. Um, so this, in this context, uh, that's an important skill. But catastrophic failure is is, is is something that you should reflect on a lot as you build up right. those learnings because it's you want you want to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, so during this time, uh, mm -hmm. you know, during this time you're you're building clickable, uh, you know, you're. Going out, you're raising mm -hmm. funds, yep. you're developing a product, you're losing, you know, sleep and weight potentially. Well, I, I, I had six books go out, those seven, so, six years, I had six books. That's what I wanted to ask. I had three kids. Where? And uh, okay. a startup. So, okay, so where is the where is the time to write these six books coming from? Yeah. Where is the, uh, well, where, you know, where's the time to, to spend with it, three it's, kids? It's very important to, one, it, so a friend of mine, a guy named Richard St. John, who I've, I've gone to TED for the last I guess almost 11, 12 years now, and he's a wonderful writer and interviewer and incredibly curious, wonderful guy. And he wrote this book about the, the, the myth of work-life balance. And he basically said, um, you have to choose your family or your work. So he did all, he talked to hundreds of CEOs and founders and, and executives and realized that there is no such thing as work-life balance, it's a myth. Um, there's only one way to solve for it, which is you have to pick your family or you pick your work or you can give up sleep. <laughs> okay, That's so, the how, only, so how many hours a day are you sleeping? Right? I mean, now I'm probably like six, seven, but back during those years I was probably five, maybe. It was it was really bad. Right. But I, you know, you just have the burning drive, and that was just a chapter I went from 34 to, now I'm 42, so it's maybe 32 to 40 where I just didn't need it, maybe. Right. Maybe I'll die of a heart attack in a couple of years, who knows? But like, that that was a chapter where that was just what was required, and uh, I also have great people around me. Right. I mean, I have, I've had the same executive assistant who's incredibly talented for the last eight years, Susan Green. I have a personal controller who manages all my finances, so I don't spend a t uh, even a second thinking about money, which is not a good or a bad thing. So whether you have a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. It's just that that's a low return on my mindset. Uh, my cycles, like I could, you could have someone do that for you. So if I'm building my company where my real wealth is coming from, I don't need to manage the pieces that take up cycles of learning, like your insurance or whatever those things are. That can be done for you. Um, I had great collaborators in writing books so I've always had a partner so while the yield is high I have good agents and I have good co-authors and I have good editors like it can scale based on the time you just have to be incredibly efficient and I, that's one of the things I'm very good at is I have an incredibly tight system of how I manage every moment of my day towards the highest priorities and have developed that over the last 10 years Neil Capel was on the show a few weeks ago from, from Sail Through. Yeah, and, he's uh, a great guy, by the way. He's what hilarious. an awesome company. Yeah, it's hilarious guy. He's going to kill it. I love that idea. Uh, listen to that podcast. He told a chilling story towards the end. That, 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 uh, right, I will. I'm going to use it as a teaser here to yeah. get people to listen to that episode. Uh, he talked about work-life work integration, which I thought was, was, was interesting. He doesn't believe in work-life balance either. Yeah, I know. He sort of yeah. believes that he, 
we didn't get too into it, but he was, t- and I, that's sort of, a, I think, what I've come to believe that that I am, you know, the, to me, the most valuable thing as an entrepreneur is not money, but flexibility and freedom. And yeah, I time is the new money for sure, yeah. without a doubt. So, like, you know, I can. Or it appear I, to be relaxing when you're really working, right? You're on a beach, <laughs> but you're like working, you know, like yeah, that. that I, was, I was doing that two days ago. Yeah, exactly. You're that's all tan, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that I believe. In, yeah. I think, or, yeah. Or and a, I managed to knock out two books as well, though not 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 quite on the uh, not, <laughs> well, not not bestsellers. No, no. The, um, that's again good time and fortune. But the, yeah. the other thought thought about um, this is like I think another way to simplify and say is that you have to bring the same love for your family and your kids. You have to bring for your work, but. What you have to be very careful with, and this is something that I had, I need to be very careful with, is that I have to bring the same love to my family I do to my work, vice versa, <laughs> my work to my family, because, you know, you you really do have this fidelity around your your company, and it's a really bad, can be a really bad relationship or an addiction. Like right. you have to like be very careful that I am bringing that that symmetry, that integration, that integrated life to both my work and my family's, my family's my work, and and making sure that I'm not. Cheating either one. So let me ask you this: when, yeah. when did you? At what point in your in your entrepreneurial biography or your entrepreneurial history did you did you start a family? Like, it, was there a time? Could you could you have had a family when you started? And you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how old you were. I guess you were right out of college when you started your first yeah. first venture. So maybe that was a little early. But you know, Smart Ray, could you have had a family yeah. at that point? Or I don't know. I, I, um, so yes, I think you can. I mean, I, one thing about a family, you, I must have kids, but um, I do have one. Right. So I have three little boys are crazy, but it's like you, it, inc- it brings an incredible filter to your time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know this, like, because yeah. when you're in your twenties and your early thirties, you're, you can spend all day in the office and uh, you know, maybe a 20% of that time is wasted. When I'm, when you're taking 20% of your time, like that's time in my sons, like that's incredibly expensive time. So I mean, even before I got to this interview, I had two back-to-back meetings that, like, within thir- you know, 30 minutes of the hours I'm in, I'm like, okay, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Not because I, I didn't want to be rude, but I had people around me who could lead the meeting for it, but my contribution was going to zero, and I can't burn that time. Right. So, like, that's an example of, like, I'm collecting those hours, that time back in the day, and maximizing how you commute. In fact, I've just read some interesting articles about... It's called, um, it's like a... I don't know if it's called, like, collective triggering or something, which is if you want to achieve a goal... You trigger you, you collect it and trigger around something you dislike to do. So, you would actually listen to whatever a financial modeling book while you worked out, or you listen, you know, watch movies, things like that. Like, um, and it's right. just about, about really condensing the value of your time. Right. Interesting. So let's talk about bionics. Yep. So, um, so. Uh, so you've 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 learned from from Clickable. Yep. Um, and Cl- Clickable still exists. Yeah, still ironically, in some form, right? So this is the this is the amusing part about it is that uh, I guess there's nothing amusing about it. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> One is I, I love that company, not right. a little. Like I'll, I mean, the people and the culture and the brand and what it meant for. But and uh, it was a very tough lesson. But I, I, I you know. Even today, I mean, it has it had a, it still has a fantastic reputation that people around it what we meant at the marketplace, but it just uh, was short lived. But um, you know, the company that bought it now actually that's that is their brand. So like, I will be because so of because of geo targeted retargeted ad tech, and because I still look for it, I'm being served ads for like clickable. It's like you're seeing like this, you know, that long lo- lo- lost love, and it's like it's just so weird because it's uh, it's it's you in that idea, and it's not you. That's hilarious. it's like a ghost. Um, okay, so let's talk about Bionic. Yes. So, yep. so how? And, and I'm curious about one other thing. Actually, yeah. I'm trying yeah, to get yeah. to these, but it seems like you're always co-founding. And yeah, 
why, why is that? My co-founder, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're, you kind of already touched upon, yeah. you know, playing to your strengths and efficiencies mm -hmm. in in letting other people pick up where maybe you're, you're a, you know, yeah. a little weaker, weaker or less yeah. important to you. Yeah, um, so. Let me, I'll let you go out, grab some water here. Um, right. And uh, this is, it'll, it'll add to the character of the show. We'll hear you wrestling, <laughs> wrestling, wrestling with the, uh, the plastic cards. Okay. What, uh, so, yeah, why co-founders? And then just force me to go right to Beyond Bionic, because yeah. I know you're on a tight time yeah, schedule. Yeah, sure. So why why a co-founder? So this is a actual real statistic: is that um, if you took a working horse, a Clydesdale, or some large horse, I don't know much about horses, but I know the statistics behind it, which is one horse can pull twenty six thousand pounds. Oh, sorry, twenty six hundred pounds. Two two collectively yoked can pull twenty eight thousand. Hmm. So like it's literally an order of magnitude of force. Interesting. And so um, if you have a really good co-founder and you're strong in those in, in opposite but equally compounding skills. The, the pace and speed of the, of the company just grow literally in order magnitude. So um, um, you just get more done. You have higher quality thinking. You can lead in different ways. You can see weaknesses and strengths. You can all I go on and on. I mean, my co-founder now is the best co-founder I've ever had in my life. Her name is Ann Berkowitz. You should interview her. She's, she's the real star. Fantastic. Um, Bring her on. She's the founder of Select Minds. She sold to Oracle uh, for about three and a half years ago. Tried to like retire, semi-retire. I wouldn't let her do it. She's now my co-founder. And, uh, you know, it's beautiful mind, MIT polymath type of person. And she's an amazing operator. You know, she's, she runs the company, which, you know, for me, I can do, but don't enjoy doing. I'd rather my time, you know, build, you know, doing the job of a, of a founder and CEO, which is basically three things. It's vision, it's talent, and it's never, no three, it's never run out of money. Mm -hmm. That's the job, you know, and she's, she is my perfect complement in building this thing and uh, we're very fortunate and we're growing really fast and we're self-funded uh, we're uh, about almost 20 people now we'll be 18 and 20 people by the end of uh, Q going into Q3 um, and we'll do about 10 million revenue this year so it's gone pretty quickly fascinating that you're self-funding how did you make that choice considering you've, you've yeah. a history of raising yeah I've raised a lot of money um, no um, I just because we can we have right. we, we, we have very big customers who have <laughs> tremendous uh, you know the best validation in the world is get paid for pay for something. So right. we are we're going in and solving a very very pr big problem, and that is that big companies struggle to get to commercial truth. There's so much internal bias towards decision making that I'm, I, this is I don't mean this in a negative way. It just is a it's 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 sort of what exists in big companies. There's a there's a com there's an intellectual dishonesty around decisions that 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 is decision matters more for internal reasons than external reasons. Okay. It matters more about the internal politics and right. decision-making that does actually what the customer wants to buy. Right. So we built this growth operating system, we call this, that, um, and we've been pretty secretive about this, so this, I'm not talking publicly about it because we're growing very quickly. Okay. Uh, we work directly for the CEO, and uh, we help um, create a framework for them to make a very, very large volume of bets with their teams in particular market areas where there's a lot of growth. This could be Bitcoin or drones or you know, athleticism, whatever it is, you know, for our customers. Um, and they use our team and our tools. We have a, we have a platform called validate.com, which you can't see, but it exists. We own the verb and the trademark that's becoming code for commercial truth. Did you validate that? Did you validate that? Did you validate that? And we have a tool set with you know, um, tools and experts and, and, and customers that can exist in a single place. So if you're the CEO and you're buying a decision, you can believe the decision as opposed to right. crossing your fingers that you hope your team is right. And 
this is a massive, massive problem going after, and we're we're really you know, growing into it very quickly. It's almost fortuitous that you can't discuss it because I know we don't have that much time. I know. There you go. <laughs> so I know. I completely hosed you today because no, that's, sorry, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Do, you have, do, you have, do you have a few? Yeah, a few I do. More? Okay, I'll we'll, go we'll right up it. to the edge. We right can, up to I the edge. Okay. Too, and I'll jump on a call. So I'm curious. So um, I mean, a, a couple of things here. So you, so you're, you're self-funding this, um, mm-hmm. and you're also making investments through Alt Option Return. Is there? Mm-hmm. Do you have a different? Framework that you use for things that you're investing your money in versus things you're investing your time in. Yeah. How do you make those choices? So, no. In fact, the the my the time value of my money is is, is much 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 higher than right. my the actual cash investments. I mean, we're we're doing our range can go from twenty five grand to one hundred grand. We're classic seed stage investors. We've done about thirty plus deals that range from couldn't you know contently and artsy and tap ad to you know we're 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 also investors and in limited partners in the founders fund. So we're in we're in Airbnb and and Palantir and SpaceX and other things are pretty cool, um, but I do you know we do you know several investments uh, a, a year and sometimes several investments a quarter um, through both of those vehicles. But the, you know, interesting to your point, I use the five lenses out of the startup playbook in both scenarios, both for my professional career, for what we do, and for my investments. And those five lenses, as I, I gave the first one, is if it, there is not a credible answer to these questions, either out of the box investment opportunity or over a short period of time, call it one to three years, it's probably not a good investment in my view. Because this is the lenses on the minds of some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, from Sarah Blakely to Reed, Elon and others. And then that first one is proprietary giftedness. Does the founder have a proprietary gift? That's true. What's the unfair advantage at a skill level? What do they know that no one else in the world knows? Um, life experience, skill, knowledge, mm-hmm. whatever that is, a secret. Number two is, um, how do they? How have they gained extreme focus on a single big idea? You know, you want to invest in. You know, as Michael Moritz once told me, he said you want to invest in, you know, farms like horse farms or sheep farms or cow farms. Mm-hmm. You don't want to invest in farms with short, you know, sheep and cows and ducks running around together. Like extreme focus, <laughs> right? He did that while his feet were on a table and I was staring at his feet. Uh, the third one is is um, to build painkillers and not vitamins. You've probably heard of that because of, you know, your right. capital days. It gotta be dealing with chronic, lifelong, malignant growing pain. Right. Vitamins are elective, those are hopeful. Wouldn't it be great if that happened? You know, just ask that customer to change the behavior, very unlikely. Right. The third reason is more is harder because it's almost like a funnel. If it does there's no proprietary gift, if there's extreme focus on a single big idea, if it's a painkiller, now you're in the execution phases. And so now you the, the fourth lens is is there a credible roadmap? Over a period of time, call it three years, that they can actually create something that's ten times better. You've heard us in the past, ten x. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the point is, like, if you get trapped between something that's probably incrementally better, two or three times better, but it's perishable. Competitive landscapes are, you know, the competitors are not dumb. They're going to figure it out, and it's that 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 uh, advantage will expire. So you want to find something that's permanent. And another way to think about that is, ninety-seven percent of all you know investments, including you know my own experience at Clickable, go to asset sales, right? So. That mm-hmm. one asset better be could should be able to stamp the whole value of the company in a lot of cases, as opposed to be evenly distributed across all the assets. Right. Very big idea. The last one is this sort of surprised me, but about how aggressive you need to be is you need to be a monopolist from day one, hmm. creating permanence in the life of cust- the customer, the problem, you know, hooks and barbs intentionally. And so there can be a lot of goodwill behind that, but you want to be in a place where you have permanence. Those four lenses guide my investment thesis and what I'm building at Bionic. I want to ask you this. Yeah. I want to make sure I get this in. We got five yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. You, for whatever reason, you know, have to walk away from a company. Your co-founder has to walk away from your company. Yep. You've talked about some, you know, 
big time CEOs here, um, you know, founders Elon Musk and and yep. uh, and Reid Hoffman and you know Steve Case, you've, you've interviewed and Sarah Blakely yep. and, and all these amazing people. Who you're picking to run your company and why, and or, or even, yeah, even yeah. someone you haven't interviewed, I mean, or someone you haven't mentioned, of course. Yeah. But, uh, um, well, I mean, maybe I, isn't it, that profile? Is yeah. What I'm I mean, in the book, by the way, um, I always jokingly say that, like, I, I have the good fortune of knowing a bunch of like the Brad Pitts of the startup world, and I'm <laughs> sort of like a Steve Buscemi, like I'm a career actor. But and, and a lot, lot in the book as well. There's a lot of fantastically hugely successful career actors. You know, they built companies, right. and they had great exits, and. You know, maybe they're not a billionaire, but they they have a tremendous amount of liquidity. They've done very well, but they're they're back at work building things. They're builders. That's the that's sort of the job. That's what I do. Um, but uh, I I would want to hand like our company will be acquired at some point in the next. I want to do it for ten years. I'm two years into that, so I, my intention is to get across the finish line. Is is the whole promise, and so you I think I'd want to turn it over to the hands of another entrepreneur. So like, I don't know who the natural owner is of the company. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm not thinking about exit or like. I, in fact, I haven't spent. I've, I can I can tell you that honestly, I've probably only spent maybe a half hour on two and a half three years. Even look at the competitive landscape. Hmm. I do not care. I'm building my one thing, that problem and my obsession. That problem is all that matters. And if it fails for that, then I failed. But if it doesn't, then I, I will. I need every ounce of the energy to be not listening to the noise, but listening to that problem. So I would hope that we would. We would exit to someone who cares about and values that problem as much as we do, and is ideally built and owned and still run by an entrepreneur. Um, and that remains to be seen. I don't know who that is, um, but uh, I'm sure we'll discover it in the next couple of years. Awesome. Thanks so much. I mean, I'm going to let you go. This is a great energy. Yeah. I, think, I think we managed to compress because we're both talking quickly. Yeah, I talked a very full fast. full interview, and it's great. And then 40 minutes. So I've tried so to fix that, and it doesn't work. My, my mom has been telling me I talk fast and mumble since I was like, you know, whatever, a zygote. And I just can't. It doesn't. It's unfunfixable. My family just tells me I mumble. So yeah, uh, I do too. So okay, do. there's no talk fast. They just it's say you're mumbling. It's harming you, right? Like you're hugely <laughs> successful. Like what are you, okay, mumble. Okay, great. That's a weakness. Who cares? Like you don't, don't, don't fix yourself. So, anyways. Uh, again, I'll let you run to your call, but thanks so much for, yes. the for being here. Thank you. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.